Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Tonight, I am joined by my dear friend and colleague, Diane Musho Hamilton, with whom I have been plowing the integral fields for many years, seminars, many books, conferences, meetings, and <laughs> from whom I have learned so much, particularly about the spiritual path and the spiritual path of relationship. And that's <laughs> some of your lines okay. of genius, die. You know. Hmm, so anyway, if, if you don't know, Di, Diane Bushel-Hamilton is, in addition to being a core integral teacher, is a Zen sensei. She is a Zen teacher with the Sangha Two Arrows Zen, which operates out of an urban Zendo in Salt Lake City and a brand spanking new mountain Zendo in the wilds of Southern Utah. That's mm -hmm. yes, right. She is the author of The Zen of You and Me. And welcome, Sister Di. How are you, dear? Thank Good you, dear. Good to have you with Jeff. us. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Congratulations on The Daily Evolver. I know people really, really appreciate the trouble you take to get online and give us in, in integral interpretations of world events. It's so helpful. Yeah. And also to spotlight people who are doing the same. Yeah. And, 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 and you are, I mean, you're really one of the pioneers of, of integral and then the integration of integral with uh, contemplative is particularly Zen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so as integralists, you and I both think and feel that things are evolving. That's the whole point. And yeah. the new, new stages of basically everything mm -hmm. are coming online all the time. And this includes spiritual practice. And, mm -hmm. um, and I know you've thought a lot about this. And the reason I know you've thought a lot about this is that today I saw an email you sent out or your organization okay. did yeah. about a program you're doing called the Future of Zen, uh, the Future of Zen Practice, Exploring the Encounter of Tradition and Innovation. Yes. And I really want to know your latest thinking on this. Okay. Uh, and so I called it, asked you if you'd be on, and we worked it out tonight, so here we are. And yeah. So let's just start there. I mean, okay. you know, practices change through history. We can see how all of that is. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, something new is happening, and the old forms are falling away. And, you know, what do we make of it? Well... I, I would like to reiterate what you said. I mean, when I was very deeply involved in Zen study and practice with my teacher, and, you know, for whatever reason, Buddhist meditation has kind of scratches the existential itch for me um, in terms of, uh, you know, we always say in the Buddhist tradition that, that until you narrow the gap, and you really learn how to become one with things, you know, not about things, but as one, um, that the itch doesn't get scratched. So I really discovered through meditation that, that that was true for me, that I felt like I was able to kind of dissolve the experience of separation and really become, with my, become one with my whole life. And I didn't have any particular ambition about it. In fact, my teacher brought me in at one point into a conversation and asked me if I had any ambitions to teach, which, and I said, no. And he said, well, you should start thinking about others. 
So <laughs> that was interesting. But shortly thereafter, um, we got introduced to Ken and my teacher, Genpa Roshi, went to Boulder or Denver and met with We're Ken talking Ken Hawk. Wilbur, of course, Ken integral Wilbur, philosopher. Yes. That's right. And, um, and Ken got very interested in his method. You know, he connected to it and he dived right in. And so then he invited Ken and myself to a series of events. And that's when you and I met. And I think we're, we're always trying to think, is it, was it 2003 or four? It was, it was the end of 2003. It and there was a of lot of cool people there. You know, yeah. this was when Ken was yeah. really coming out. Yes. And, um, and this was really my first integral event. And, I, and, and it might have been yours as well. Absolutely was the first. And it was, okay, you know, and it was at Ken's house. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Gempo was your teacher, and mm -hmm. he was teaching Big Mind, which yeah, Ken was, was really Ken. enamored of, and we all were. Yeah, he loved and, it. And, he just... and the reason is, is because it reliably uh, transmits a non-dual state, yeah. within, reliably, predictably, within about an hour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It gives people a taste, gives people a taste, and if they've been practicing more sometimes they actually have quite an opening during the process so yeah. i mean big mind itself was an innovation and of, an integration and an integration you know yes. to use uh you know jungian jungian part theory and to have that come down through helen hydra stone stone and then to use their facilitative method to ask the questions that zen study and practice so the very experience of the big mind was one of a of a kind of an innovation of a skillful means that was useful to our time right you know so of course for some people it's controversial because within any tradition whether it's music or science or whatever it is there's always as ken's pointed out there's always a preserving function and there's always the creative advance into novelty and he loves to to quote that is it alfie uh, whitehead the yeah. Alfred Whitehead, the yeah. creative advance into novelty that's just built into the fabric of the cosmos. Yes, that's right. That's right. So the cosmos both preserves and it innovates. And as Ken likes to say, when something endures in all four quadrants and gets traction in all four quadrants, you know, it will be preserved. And yet if, if things don't grow and change, they, they ossify and they cease to be as, uh, what's the word they cease to be as meaningful you might yeah. say so i think it's been one of ken wilber's big concerns is that the mythic mean traditions as we know them and zen is included in this you know evolved you know somewhere three to five thousand years ago and um maybe ten if you look at judaism or hinduism but that you know all of the insights of of modernism um having to do with brain science or, uh, you know, just our basic understanding of the physical world and all that empiricism has brought to bear. And then the postmodern insights, those that really seek to create equity between the genders or to certainly understand and create a place for people who have, you know, same-sex orientations and to maybe rectify ourselves to the kind of awful history of the world and to to not take empiricism quite so literally and to find a place for interpretation so in other words culture has evolved a lot and there's some very meaningful things that have happened since the traditions were established and it's really ken's 
you know, proposition that unless the traditions learn how to integrate some of that, they just simply aren't as useful. And there's many, many examples of why that's true. So he sort of insisted that anybody worth their salt who's in, in the spiritual tradition should be looking through an evolutionary and not only an evolutionary lens, but also a human development lens, because there's so much about human adult human development that's left out of how we do spiritual practice. So he's been a tremendous advocate for asking us to start to look at some of these things and seeing if there's a way to bring them to bear. Well, and Zen is actually well positioned for this in a way, because Zen is an experience. It's a, it's a realization. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of dogma. In fact, you're kind of allergic Mm -hmm. to dogma. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so you could just work with it Mm -hmm. and actually see, so what does move the ball? What's next? And so Mm -hmm. for our listeners, and this is the integral ghetto, right? Right, right. Um, so, you know, we've done it all. We've kissed all the frogs. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of us have done a lot of meditation. Mm-hmm. What is actually next in contemplative or, or sort of an, in, in a new integral uh, spiritual path? What well, I, I, I really think that, you know, the formulation that we've made around waking up and growing up and you might say showing up and then we also talk about cleaning up is one way we could talk about it where the 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 support of of, i mean any spiritual practice is really concerned with shifting identification from the local identity and the constricted identity and the limited identity of diane and of jeff and helping us become identified with all things and so certainly Zazen is really about that. It's about, um, you might say, the, the, the sense of self just becoming more porous, more transparent. In some cases, for some people, you know, just radical shifts. I mean, you see those kinds of radical shifts in someone like Eckhart Tolle or Byron Katie or certainly the long history of Zen masters who's had, who've had very big openings. Right. There's also a version of that of just the people who practice continuously but don't have necessarily a radical opening, but just gradually over time become less defensive, less egoically oriented, and much more willing to identify with others and with life itself. Right. And so whether it happens gradually or suddenly, um, whether it's a glimpse or whether it's a radical transformation, the practice works, and that's yeah. why it's still here. So well, that takes care of the waking up part. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it, it, we can see that uh, you know one of the integrations that has already gone on between you already talked about it was big mind. Right. So big mind is an integration of Buddhist contemplation, right, with uh, voice dialogue therapy, where yeah. we're looking at subpersonalities and we're speaking from subpersonalities, and we're doing mm-hmm. it as a group. And there is yeah. this. It's a new thing. Yeah, you know that neither of them had been brought together, and you and I both spent a good bit of time at Naropa. You back in the days of Trumpa. Yes, that's right. A long time ago. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. so jealous. But at any rate, you know we've done Naropa, and of course Naropa is a great example of Mm -hmm. encounter of Western psychology and Eastern spirituality. Right. That alone already. Mm-hmm. is moving it, us into some new territory. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and one sort of helps to speed up the other in a way. I mean, they, they, they support each other, mm-hmm. you know, with a good teacher. Yeah. Um, and, there, and there's some good writing out there about that. I think Mark Epstein has done some really good work around that. The 
there's, I think, another writer, I believe his name's Jeffrey Hopkins, who's written about that. And so there are some good books talking about the, the confluence of uh, Buddhism and also psychotherapy and, and psychology. And I think that you know, Buddhist psychologists rank pretty well among the better psychologists just because they know. Totally. I mean, my goodness. I mean, think of how contemplation mm -hmm. helps us to do, you know, our typical psychological processes. Yes, that's my right. Goodness. Well, we become great observers of what's actually happening in the mind. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, so that's one way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, you know, another way that I think of when I think of you particularly is um, the we space waking up. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this new thing where it's not about going off into the cave, mm -hmm. but you yeah. actually have to have human contact with other people. Well, it's so funny. It's that that funny thing where people say, you know, I love humanity. It's the people I don't like. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah, exactly. And we say <laughs> we say in our Buddhist practice, we say we love the sangha. It's just the people that drive us crazy. <laughs> and 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 interestingly enough, there's the the kind of instructions you might say from this mythic meme level of development, because as we know, our worldviews change and what becomes important shifts and changes, but basically the precepts, I mean, all the great traditions have the commandments or the precepts or the codes of conduct or the ethical guidelines that we need to use. But what we've also found is that in, in the postmodern era, that some of the, you might say another, iteration of those skill sets has, have really come forward. So let's just look at simple listening skills. Thich Nhat Hanh talks a lot about the importance of deep listening. And, and I know in my work as a mediator, listening is, is everything. So if we can learn how to listen to each other, that has tremendous impact. As we become more trusting and learning how to kind of deal with conflict, we can actually be more authentic with people. There's a place for our emotions as a source of information and energy. And those, this, this skill set is just simply not covered in the precepts. You know, the precepts say, don't talk, about, don't talk badly about people. Well, that's right. But what happens when you have to have a conversation and you're mad? You know, right. so, so in a certain way, we're growing our capacity to work in relationship. And I think some of the research that's been done on, on particularly on men's happiness, points to emotional development, relational development, which leads to altruism. So in my mind, when you talk about what's next, what, what's next is actually a genuine practice of sangha, not just one in which we sit in a talking circle and hear each other, although that's a nice breakthrough too, but where we actually practice our relationship skills and become more real, more authentic, more energized, and more honest with each other. Wow. Yeah. So that's what you're working with with your people. Absolutely. Because and how's I can't, that going? I think it's going great. I mean, it's a challenge in the sense that, you know, we avoid conflict because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We accommodate too much because we all know how to accommodate. And when we do finally decide to speak, we haven't clarified it very much. So it comes out in often rather competitive or aggressive terms. So until people have the chance to actually work with those in a real way, um, you don't see a lot of progress. But I think I really feel confident the people I'm working with are having a different experience than they've had before. And it's a little bit of a bottom line in my sangha. You know, it's like you have yeah. to, you have to be willing. Well, you know, I've, I've taught a lot with you. I know you have. Yeah. We've taught and, together. Oh my God. 
the places you would take these poor people. I know. I know it. You know, I mean. <laughs> what are some of them? Do you remember some? Well, that you would uh, just be fearless. I mean, that you had some capacity to um, accommodate and metabolize and somehow even be friendly with yeah. all of the stuff mm -hmm. that inevitably arises when people are talking about real shit. Yeah, exactly. You know, we can have pseudo community yeah. uh, till we're blue in the face. Right. But if we want to move beyond that, we're going to get into some territory that most of us don't know anything about and want right. to get the hell out of here. Yeah, that's right. It, it starts to but feel like you're, you. you're walking into a, yeah. Well, I, I've, I've done it so much that I kind of know the territory. I kind of know how to get through. I think it's because you were the rodeo queen. <laughs> I, I think it's just the <laughs> echo of that. But at any rate, so, so you're really working with this um, authenticity in terms of showing up with each other mm -hmm. and doing growing, it. In a growing way. up emotionally. We have to grow up. We can't just keep acting like kids, you know, and toddlers and have no emotional sophistication, not know how to deal with our mind states, just sit on the cushion and everything's fine. And as soon as we get off, we go right back to all the old patterns, <laughs> you know? So I oh think you're are in our teaching relationship, yours and mine and Terry's, we've, we've done a lot of this kind of work together. Yeah. We, yeah. we, you know, I've watched you do it. I mean, I, you've I, done I, it too. You've ventured in. You've been yeah, I, I do my thing. Things. You I say things. Thing. Yeah. You take risks. That's great. Yeah. No, it's actually been very helpful for me. And, mm -hmm. um, it, and it goes against my grain, uh, but uh, I'm grateful for it. Mm -hmm. And so to see that, and I do see it already. I mean, I mm -hmm. see this as a spiritual practice. Anytime that we can sort of metabolize, uh, get, a, get a witness view of a C instead of B, mm. our patterns. Yes. Um, that's spirit. That is, you know, the definition of spiritual growth. Yeah. And totally. to do that with other people um, is, um, you know, just another version of that. It's not also particularly totally new. I mean, we've had monasteries and we've had, you know, spiritual groups for uh, time immemorial. But, but mostly we made people sit still and be quiet. It's true. They sat in <laughs> rows. <laughs> just, you know, just wash floors. Not a lot of real yeah, communication. No, it's so true. Stick to the so, schedule. Yeah. So, so that leads me to, you know, this sort of, you know, you know, if we think about Zen, Zen is a amber, um, uh, yeah, it's a, stru a structure. So it's a very hierarchical and there's all these layers and levels. And um, <laughs> you and I have both lived through a cultural change where we had to kiss the ass of our teachers. <laughs> now our students don't kiss our asses. And I just think that is completely unfair. I do too. I think it's just, <laughs> but it's totally true. We just got, we got caught right in that little yeah, sour spot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, but, but, so, you know, we actually, you know, one of the things that I think is true about Integral is that we actually take spirituality seriously. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really want this to be transformational. We want to have our minds blown about it. We're, this is not just about dancing in the woods. It's, all, you know, all of that could be part of it and so forth. But we really want to blow ourselves up here. Yes. Absolutely. And, we, we have to have some 
um, still transmission of authority. Well, transmission and, 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 yeah. and submission, right? Or, you know, what, what's, tell me about that. How, how are you working that out? Well, I think it's one of the diciest, the diciest territories in, in spiritual practice. I mean, certainly, as you said, we've, in, we've inherited in the Zen tradition quite a strict hierarchy in terms of who the spiritual teacher is and who the student is and what the, the framework for that relationship is, what the agreement is. And at the same time, you know, in the States, you've got all these spiritual seekers who have been schooled to have their own opinions, who have been taught to be creative and to be really self-responsibility and expressive. And, and then all of a sudden they come back into what, what can be actually quite a, quite a large developmental step backwards. And so I think the, the important point is we really clarify you know, it, it's, you know, if you want to learn to play piano, you go to somebody who's better than you are. The same is true with spiritual practice. Someone who has much more experience, maybe they've had some openings, maybe they really understand uh, some of the, the heart of the teaching. Um, <clears throat> but that doesn't mean, I think, the kind of old disciplines where you just sort of give your entire life up to the to the preferences of the teacher and to the inside of the teacher. I, I believe that that's really changing. I know it's certainly changed in my practice, partly because I don't, I don't want that level of responsibility. I think it can backfire into a kind of infantilization where people are so used to orienting toward the teacher and around the teacher that they, they become irresponsible in a way. They're, the, you and I have been talking about Wild Country, the special on Bhagwan Rajneesh. Uh, Netflix about mm -hmm. the community of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. It is heightened like the 80s or whatever it was. It was, I think it was in the 90s. 90s, okay. I, I, well, maybe it was so in a the six 80s. part documentary that's yeah. astonishing. It, yeah, it kind of tracks the four years of Bhagwan Rajneesh and his followers moving from India up to Oregon and then proceeding to create just a terrible situation with the local government and the state government and finally the feds and basically the, you know it's quite quite a show of what can go wrong with a guru yoga style practice yeah. i mean there's a woman in that who's just frightening to me i mean she's just frightening her whole sense is that she's extremely devoted to the guru and whatever the guru wants and so at some point they think some doctor is you know threatening to the guru so they decide they're going to poison him and she just raised her hand and said, I'll do it. I mean, that's a very, very shadowy outcome of mm -hmm. that kind of guru yoga where you have right. people whose personality structures really just go astray right. by, by not being held to, to some level of self-responsibility. So Absolutely. I think both from a typology perspective and from a developmental perspective, there's all kinds of problems there. Yeah, the and let's, is, not, let's not overly you know, romanticize that stage of development. Because we see yeah. it um, in terms of the, you know, the Catholic priest scandals. Mm -hmm. We see it okay. in terms of, you know, Bhagwan and no end, actually. Well, and how, how many things do we have who of, are... Of these absolute people, yeah. these guys with absolute power. That's and right. Women. And, and, and people, all friends of ours who were raised in institutions like the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church that felt so fundamentally oppressed that it's taken them years to get over it and kind of reclaim their lives and mm -hmm. that they're filled with a kind of wounding or a resentment. So they, these, these dilemmas are serious. They're real. Yeah. And, and 
they deserve to be questioned and lived thoroughly. So I'm really trying to clarify that with my own students. Yeah. You know, I'm here to elucidate the, the Buddha Dharma. I'm also here to transmit a state of mind that is open, available, that's non-conceptual, that's immediate in the here and now, that is unconditioned. Hopefully, my students have some experience of that direct taste but they have to also remain tremendously self-responsible. I mean, I'm not a guru. I'm not even think of myself as a master. I think of myself as a teacher who's spent a lot of years in the tradition and I can, I can, you know, give some guidance, but. You, you can know. also cut their heads off, can't you? <laughs> I've seen you do that occasionally. I've heard stories too. Really? Well, well yeah. I remind mean. Remind me. <laughs> <laughs> no, well. Um, you know, just, um, so there you are, you're a teacher. Okay. Yeah. You're not a guru. Okay. Let's say you're a capital T teacher. Okay. So you're you're going to have some authority. Yeah. And, and so you're going to give yourself some room to tell somebody something that they don't want to hear in a way that's going to, you know, you know, metaphorically cut their head off. And it, well, it, I mean, it, I just, just going to disabuse yeah. them of a, you know, a, a fantasy about themselves or the world. And I just did it this weekend and it was, okay. it was painful. It was painful for me and it was painful for the student. But this is a woman that I've been working with for about five or six years. And uh, she's a very diligent practitioner, does lots of meditation. But when push comes to shove, she just has really profoundly negative interpretations of what's happening and tends to blame others a lot for her mind state. And I told her that I really thought she needed to do some therapeutic work that I ask her to leave the practice. And when she's done that therapeutic work, she can come back in and she was not happy about it. But I just basically had to say, listen, this is not addressing what you need to address. And we've, you know, I feel like it's my obligation to do that. Yeah. You know, I can't just it allow someone to hang your out. To do that. It's my obligation. Yeah. So no, that's she, the piece. About, she's mad. Yeah. You know, well, that's the piece about, you know, if you are going to actually create a group, a sangha, there actually does have to be a boundary of what's in and what's out. Yes. And there actually has to be somebody who is the ultimate uh, judge of yeah. what's in and what's out and who does realize that that's an obligation that they have to step up to even when it's painful. I seem a little more willing to do that than a lot of people, but I do check exactly. with my students and, you know, I get, I get feedback and and talk about it a little bit because I, do, I don't I mean when someone's practiced for five or six years you don't just want to throw them out of the practice when they right. have friends and they have connections and it means something on the other hand to let someone just completely stay stuck is not very responsible in my yeah. mind well see just what you just said mm -hmm. so you checked it out with others in the sangha mm -hmm. and you got feedback from others in the sangha I, did. I can't imagine the Tibetan teachers that I sat at the feet of for all those years, mm -hmm. ever doing anything like that, hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, but it was just not, that's not, that was not part of that earlier form. Yeah. You know, where you're right. getting feedback because, you know, you don't want to show that you have any doubt, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. I do get a lot of feedback that because we talk about waking up so that that is seeing our, our identity beyond this small self growing up which is actually expanding and working with our emotions with our relational development with you know our altruism 
Um, and then cleaning up, we refer to a shadow work, you know, which is that you cannot be in a position of power and not be blind to certain kinds of dynamics. The very fact of being in a position of power creates those blind spots. So unless you're willing to, to work on those blind spots and try to see some of what people are telling you you're seeing, that can become very dangerous too, as we know. So you're not only helping your students deal with their shadow, you're dealing with your own? Doing my best in front of everybody. Not in front of everybody. (laughs) Diane. I know. Well, that's the difference between somebody who could do what you do and and look what you're doing, you know. I mean, it's really magnetizing people in a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying. I I just try to make, I try to do what we do in psychology where we express, express vulnerability. See, this is a new pain. form, honey. This, this, I mean, this, yes, don't you think? I mean, I think so. it's nothing like the uh, amber traditional mm-hmm. form. Mm-hmm. It's not even like the modern form or postmodern form. There, there's, it's sort of an integration of the best of all of them in a way. Mm-hmm. There is an authority. There is a sense of community and doing it together. Mm-hmm. There is a sense of form. You know, of, of and, and that's what I also wanted to point out that yeah. having gone to one of your retreats, mm-hmm. I so appreciate how impeccably you have us work with the form that is just, you know, thousands of years old. Well, the Japan, Japanese forms, you know, one of the things in, in Buddhism in, in America certainly is that the Vipassana people have gotten rid of all the Indian forms and they've basically Americanized everything. And the Tibetan Buddhists and also the Japanese Buddhists have not, you know, so we still work with the Japanese forms, although we work with them. They look beautiful to an American or a Canadian, but they don't look so beautiful to the Japanese. (laughs) They say watching us do the forms is like if they were to walk around in cowboy hats, you know. Oh, I know. No, (laughs) It's true. I was just at a Soto Zen Buddhist Association meeting in um, the Bay Area, and I got up early to go sit, and I just wasn't thinking very much. And I went went into the Zendo, and everybody was wearing their robes except me, and I had like on a hoodie. <laughs> 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 I wandered in there, looked I looked like I worked for Silicon Valley, you know, with my hair and my hoodie, and yeah, and they looked so beautiful. They were so impeccable. They they were. Oh, you know, I know. Yeah. So no, I'm not. I, I'm not so great at it, honestly. Well, it's. You're, you're great enough in that, you know, as a contemporary American, it feels really good to rest in those forms and to move with They're beautiful. the group and to walk slow mm-hmm. and to follow the person in front of me and to listen to the bell ring, mm-hmm. to watch somebody uh, take on vows and become, a, you know, move up the ladder of the mm-hmm. hierarchy mm-hmm. Uh, those are all that's beautiful yeah that's you know true. we don't want to get rid of that no we don't yeah we, don't. we yeah. want to we might want to soften it and change it and for us you know the, the just the absolute utter detail of the japanese forms are i haven't studied them enough for it to be there but you know we we do some stuff this is the american version and you know i mean there's always a big conversation within teachers within this is certainly the Zen community about this. My, I have a little bit of a bone to pick just because there seems to be a lot of voice given to the, the importance of preservation. 
people want to preserve the tradition. They want it to be passed down as is. And mm-hmm. I tend to represent the voice of innovation, mm-hmm. which is that it's not simply that we want to change. It's that evolution is changing us and America is changing us and the West is changing us. And mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of just yielding to those forces and seeing what works and what endures. So yeah. I'm a little more on that side of the street, which means I'm seeing a little bit by some people as a charlatan, I think. Really? A little you're, bit. You're talking about the group of Zen teachers, so yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you just a, a, a bit about that. Uh, so there's an association of Zen teachers. There's, there's a Zen, several. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're in the white plum lineage. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. one of them. Mm-hmm. And um, is there a um, national Zen? I mean, how's Zen doing? I mean, is it growing? Is it not? Is it splittering apart? I mean, what's what's going on with the sort of national? Well, uh, there there are a number of different associations. So there's the Association of Soto Zen Buddhists in America, I believe. And that's actually connected to the Soto school in Japan. And then there is the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, which are the, mainly the American teachers who relatively Japanese influenced and quite monastic. And then you have the White Plum, which is uh, the Maizumi Roshi, who is my Dharma grandfather, Genpa Roshi's teacher. And he had transmission in three different traditions. So he's Rinzai, he's Soto, and he's also something called so they're a little bit more of a hybridization and that's their association. I belong to that. And then there's the lay, lay American Zen Buddhist Association, which are for all American Zen teachers, not just Soto teachers. And then there's the lay American Zen Teachers Association. So that's another one, which I'm not a part of, but I, I could belong to either one of those. And then you have the whole Rinzai school and then you have the Koreans. So there's a lot of Zen going on. I mean, compared to, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively rigorous form of spiritual practice. So you don't find like huge numbers of people flocking to it. I mean, the Christian mega churches are massively bigger. The Muslims are massively bigger. Buddhism has always been a relatively no, small number. That's compared true. to the rest. You yeah, know? I remember seeing the Pew studies. That she, I forget the yeah. percentage. It was small. But the thing that was so interesting to me was it just never changed. Yeah, that's right. You know, just kind of. 3% or 5% or for whatever. whatever, whatever yeah. it's sort of a standard kind of thing. And I, I haven't looked in the last few years. but Yeah, it's not a big number of people. Yeah. I mean, it's but, the practice is rigorous, you know. Learning right. how to do Zazen and really sit is challenging. That's what oh, it's, it's boring. <laughs> I mean, it you know, I just be. look at my eyelids. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, so let let's broaden it even more. Here okay. As we close, let's go um, even broader. Yeah. So you know, so you're talking about the future of Zen practice, and of course, contemplative practice. Mm-hmm. And let's think in terms of just integral practice, where we're okay. you know drawing from the West, you know, and we're bringing this sort of personal God and love and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and we're even going into nature mysticism we, where we are dancing in the woods and, and we're talking to the trees and yeah. I know you do all of these things. Yeah. And, sure. um, <laughs> you know, uh, and, your, and your students do too, right? I mean, well, I mean, let, let's just use integral for a minute. So if we look at the quadrants, right? 
We do a lot of upper left contemplation. We do a lot of practice of ethics and communication skills. We also do, you know, developing our, yeah, and developing our, our, you know, our sets of values and how we engage and what the Bodhisattva vow, those things. And then our structures, you know, some of the structures are changing. They're not quite as rigorous. You might say we certainly we let people of gender, different genders come in, people of different religious persuasions are entered. You know, that's not necessarily typical of a mythic meme thing. Nope, um, but, you know, all, all four quadrants are online and we can look at the quadrants and we look at levels. You know, we're trying to enact an integral level of development that, that it contains more complexity, both, you know, you might say the healthy element of each level. Um, lines of development, you know, someone who is, let's say, you know, really service oriented, just has a natural inclination to service. They're probably going to do really well in a Zen center. But if they don't get challenged in other lines of development, that could be problematic for them. Like maybe their meditation line, or maybe they need to learn how to do business better. So it's not just, we have to actually look at the whole human being and the different ways in which they need to develop. And in states, so much of Zen practice is about states. It's distinguishing ever-present awareness, which is present in all states, but also emotional states, altered states, heightened states. Um, you know, when you have a big opening, how long does that last? So state training is a big part of that. And then also looking at types, you know, some of us are more deeply receptive. Some people want to practice Zen like the samurais, you know, they want to sit long hours and push through and sit through pain and the impersonal. And others of us are, we're gentler in our practice and it's more receptivity and more listening and more, you know, is there a place for different typologies that we don't all have to practice like samurai warriors? Um, you know, the changes, as you said, in the student teacher relationship and hierarchy, governance structures, how these are supported. In Japan, they're all family-run temples and they're passed from father to son. In the States, they're 501c3s with teachers who come and go. I mean, that's how we do business here. So naturally, that's going to change. The brain science has a big impact, you know, when we look at what happens to the brain when we study. Yeah, so there's so many things going on. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had known all of this when I was starting out. Instead yeah. of asking myself the question, which one's right, Christianity or Buddhism? <laughs> you know, which school of Buddhism is, is it? Should I do more spirituality or psychology? <laughs> it's like I had all these silos that I was like, yeah. to, you know, run around. Yeah, there's and just no getting out of it. There's an, an actual integration. Yeah. In a way that, you know, what, what you were just describing, you know, mm -hmm. and I was sitting here listening to it. It just felt like you're just working with a, 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 an ever-changing field. Or just working with the wholeness of our life at this, yes, in exactly. this place at this time. Yes. And, and there's these people and there's you and, there's, and, you're, and you're moving the ball. Mm -hmm. And um, God bless you, if you'll pardon the expression as a Buddhist. <laughs> I, I hope I said something worthwhile. I said a lot uh, of things. Yes, uh, no, very beautiful. Great transmission, really, yeah. of what you're doing. And, and, and let me just, um, you know, give you a plug, because the, okay, the, you know, you're going to be, be great. Your, um, a program. It's called okay. The Future of Zen Practice, colon, Exploring the Encounter of Tradition and Innovation. <laughs> and why don't you just describe to us what it is? Well, it, it's an online course. It's going to be every Saturday morning from 9 to 10.15. 
there's probably 50 people who already studies in with me and who are going to be interested. We'll be looking at Ken Wilber's writing on the, the fourth turning and looking at, again, how the student-teacher relationship might be different. We'll be framing waking up and growing up and cleaning up. We'll be doing some shadow work. Uh, we'll also be looking a little bit at the brain science and what, what we've learned about the fight or flight system and as they say, the feed and breed and how we can cultivate more positive uh, hormones when we're actually sitting like dopamine and serotonin and, and those things. So integrating some of the science, um, probably some cultural studies. What do we need to do around issues of race and gender and disability and how those people show up in our sanghas? So having those kind of contemporary conversations, we may talk about social activism. You know, what does it mean to be a contemplative and an activist? That's something that engaged Buddhism has been very concerned with. So in a certain way, we're really just, with, with Ken's help and the integral frame, we're just allowing the encounter of Buddhism with the West. You know, we're Western practitioners, we're not Asian. And so because of that, things look and feel differently. Yeah. And we just that's have to live it, you fantastic. know? Yeah, that's what no, we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So this is something that people will uh, do through the Zoom platform. Yeah, we'll be using the Zoom platform. Mm -hmm. And um, it starts actually the 28th, which is, uh, we're going to run this. We're doing this on Thursday night. We're running it Friday. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Friday, uh, yeah. On the 27th. It'll happen on Saturday the 28th. It's the first one. But if people don't make it in time, they can still join in. Yeah, I think so. I think we, we usually it. have a, like a two-week window where people can still come into the course. And, 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 and they'll meet they the nice the part. Programs. Yeah, they're going to meet, you know, 40 or 50 other pretty awesome, interesting integralists. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is there some um, way, so is there a virtual community or sangha? Is there some feel yeah. of that with this? Yeah, absolutely. We have some, we have online sitting periods, so people can sit at three different times a day. Mm -hmm. You can get on the course early and sit um, for about a half an hour before we start. That We usually do some small group work on in the course, sometimes we sit together online. So people get a lot of satisfaction out of being able to join from the convenience of their own home mm -hmm. and then sit with people who are engaging some of these same questions, mm -hmm. maybe practicing in a little bit more of a progressive or more innovative way, not, not quite as traditional and rigorous as in the past, a different right. sensibility. Well, when we talk about the, the, you know, the, the future of Zen practice, I'm reading it again. Mm -hmm. uh, this is part of it right here. I mean, yeah. that we would be doing this virtually. Yeah, absolutely. People all over the world, all the needles in the haystack. Yeah, it's great. Find each other and work together. Yeah, at my last retreat, we had a person from Israel. We had a person from Afghanistan. We had people from the Netherlands and from Denmark. We had people from Colombia, from uh, Brazil, from Mexico City. There's a Japanese woman who belongs. So it's really awesome. It's an international integral scene. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing it. And, yeah, thanks uh, for having me. And for, um, you know, sharing uh, your thoughts on the future of this as we're really just inventing as, as we go along here. And mm -hmm. it's so fruitful. And, and when we look at what we're doing now versus what we were doing 20 years ago and 40 years ago, I mean, it's astonishing progress. It's amazing. And people, people are still receiving the, you know, just the basic sense of, of opening up and belonging to the world, to the universe. So that's really what it's all about. Yes, indeed. So, thank right. you, well, Jeff. Thank you, Diane Mushel-Hamilton. Okay. Jeff.
Thank you, dear. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. All right. Wonderful. Bye, everybody.